All right, who can tell me where we're turning? Habakkuk. Habakkuk. I didn't hear any Habakkuk's. <laughs> Praise the Lord, said someone. We're all Aussies. Yes, absolutely. Grab your Bibles. Let's turn to Habakkuk. We're going to continue our journey in this little book that at times is too easy to skip over. And really, although it is confronting at times, although it's a bit of a wrestle for us to get our heads around, it's like one of those nuggets of gold. I've been hearing more and more of these stories of random people just coming across gold nuggets. Have you heard of that? Just walking around, girl walking a dog, and I'm still praying, Lord, where's my gold nugget? Well, there might not be one in the natural, but we do have one in the spiritual this morning. And before we get anywhere else, let's pray. Father, just thank you for life. Thank you for one another. Thank you for joy. Just the joy of knowing you, of being in family. We thank you for your word. What a gift it is to us to lead us along the right path, to chasten, to correct us, to provide the bread that we need. And I pray, Lord, this morning as we turn to your scriptures, would you speak to us? Open our ears to hear you, open our eyes to see you afresh. Just let your goodness, as we've already prayed, rest upon us, Lord. May we behold you in some way this morning afresh in the wonder and the majesty and the greatness of all that you are. We ask that in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. So Habakkuk is where we are, and just to get us up to speed so that we can continue on with our journey through this little book. We've looked at what we've called the journey of Habakkuk. And he begins in, in this place that, let's be honest, is not only a little confronting, it's downright depressing. It's this place of desperate sorrow. And yet we see as he journeys through this wrestling that he has with what he sees around him, with what he believes in his, from his perspective, from his vantage point, is, is simply unfathomable. There's, there's no grounding that he has, no framework to place within the things that he sees, but he wrestles through and the Lord speaks to him. This book is, is built around these two interactions that Habakkuk has and he comes out at the end, as we discussed in the first week, moving from this place of sorrow to a place of singing, from this situation and circumstance of desperation to this great and wonderful declaration of who God is, from this place of pain and from faithless surroundings to, I think, what is one of the most wonderful glorious, powerful, faith-filled proclamations that you could find anywhere in the Scripture. So that's his journey, and it begins with the language of lament, this gift that God gives us for our travels through a broken world. We covered that. And then last time we looked at this, this wrestle. Let's just call it what it is. It is a wrestle that Habakkuk has that most of us have at one point or another through injustice and suffering. God, what's going on here? There's all this suffering around, there's, there's no justice, there's, where are you in the midst of this picture? And we looked at two bold claims that God makes. Number one, he invites Habakkuk to look and see. He's saying, actually, that which you're seeing is not evidence of my absence. It is, in fact, the very evidence of my 
workings, although it's very different than how you might envision or imagine me to work. His thoughts are high above, his ways are not our ways. And so rather than this being something that is held up as an argument against God, God does not exist because we see suffering and injustice. As we explored and wrestled through this, we found that in reality, it is one of the greatest evidence or realities we have of the workings of God, that he will in fact use suffering and has used suffering through the cross to destroy the works of the enemy. So that's where we wrestled through, and that takes us in our journey to the second half of chapter 1. So if you've got your Bibles, and I should just say up front, I'm actually using the New King James this morning, which will be on the screen. Normally I'd use the ESV, but I just have a, a particular like for some of the nuances that the New King James brings out in this particular text. So we had chapter 1, we had the initial lament that Habakkuk has, we have the Lord's answer, and then we just kind of peeked ahead a little bit to look at what's known as Habakkuk's second lament, which starts in verse 12. He says this, let's pick up the story there. God, are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them, talking about the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, that God had just made clear to Habakkuk that he was going to use, not as an instrument of his judgment alone, but to further his purposes and plans for his people. Lord, you've appointed them for judgment. You've marked them for correction. You who are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Effectively saying, God, this, this doesn't make sense to me. Like, they're worse than we are. Like, I understand that we've got some problems. He's voiced them in the opening remarks. But, but how is it that you could use someone more wicked than us to come and execute your plan? So you can see he's kind of moved here already more from questions of injustice and suffering to this wrestle and this tension with God's sovereignty. How does this all fit within your sovereign purpose and plan? And he continues on that vein from verse 14. He says, Why do you make men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net. They gather them in their dragnet. They rejoice and they're glad. He's saying, why does it seem like there's just no purpose? What's, what's the point to all of it? It's like we're just fish in the sea, swimming along like little creatures with no purpose, with no ruler. One, one day we're swimming in the ocean, the next day someone's fishing us out and we're served up on a platter with a side of chips and salad. Anyone to feel like that's, that's my life right there, served up on a platter? What, what, God, what, where are you? It just seems so pointless. Where's the point? In all of this, show me your hand at work in the midst of this sovereignty. He continues. They sacrifice to their net. They burn incense. Because of them, their share is sumptuous. Their food plentiful. Should they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? So where do we begin? Who's feeling encouraged after that? Let's move on, shall we, and see what the Lord will say in chapter 2. And we are going to cover a bit of scripture here. You know, we could easily delay and um, pull certain things out of passages, but I prefer here to just kind of take more of a broader 
perspective on what God will say in response to Habakkuk. So chapter 2, verse 1, let's follow on. He says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart, watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I'm corrected. And just a little aside there, we've mentioned in previous weeks how Habakkuk is this wonderful picture of wrestling through things with God. God's not afraid of our questions. But the issue too often is that we come to God to redefine him. We're like, all right, God, here's how it's going to work. I need to fit you into my box. Whereas he's very different. He says, no, I'm going to position myself and watch what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. He's saying, I know that I'm the one who needs to be corrected. I'm not coming here, God, to get you to fit in my box. My wrestle and my journey with you is that you somehow would help me fit in your box because this is not making sense. I'm not understanding these things. So do whatever you've got to do. Correct me, recalibrate me because I know that I need to fit in your paradigm and to see things from your perspective. That's how you wrestle well. We don't come to redefine God and get him to fit in our box. What if you want things to ever make sense? We say, God, you've got to redefine me, recalibrate my heart and show me things from your perspective. So chapter 2, verse 2, the Lord answers and says, here you go, Habakkuk, write the vision, make it plain on tablets that he who may run reads it. He says, I want this to be plain and simple. I want this to be so obvious that you can read this when you're running. Have you ever tried to send a text message as you're jogging along? And Never. Oh, let's move on. Okay, bad, bad sermon analogy. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets that anyone can read this. Verse 3, for this vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it because it will surely come. It will not tarry. So right up front here, he is giving Habakkuk some incredible encouragements in the midst of all of his uncertainty, all of his wrestling. God, what? I, I, he's saying there is a certainty. There is an end that will happen. There is an appointed time that I have set. Make no mistakes. Though it seems uncertain, there is a certainty. Though it seems purposeless, there is a purpose in the midst of everything that is being outworked in human history. And verse 4, really this is the critical verse, and we will go and read the rest of the chapter just so we can get the full panorama, but this is where we will come back and land. This is the verse that is picked up in three New Testament books. It became one of Paul's real theological emphases. It became a, a, a capstone or a foundation stone of the Reformation. cannot be underemphasized in its importance. This is what God says to Habakkuk. He says, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Some translations say the righteous, the just, the righteous, shall live by his faith or by his faithfulness. So what, what is God saying here? And, and let's dwell there for a moment so we can make some sense and have some perspective going into the remaining verses of this particular chapter. God is saying, let me just pause for a moment 
and give you some perspective. You're there asking, what's, what's the point? Where are you, God, outworked in human history? It just feels like there's so much going on, I can't make sense of anything that I'm seeing. And so God says, here is my perspective. This vision is for the end. As you stand back and as you look at not only your life but the epochs of human history, what is it that's going to stand? What is it that's going to remain? Is it going to be how much wealth this particular person had? Is it going to be the rise and fall of different kingdoms? I mean, they all make their mark to some degree as history rises and falls. But what is it that's going to endure? What is it that's actually going to last and actually going to matter? And ultimately, God gives Habakkuk this choice and this decision to make. There's only two ways that you can ever live your life, as the proud man or as the man of faith. There's no middle ground. That's it. It's two choices. And so God will go on and he'll say, let me give you a picture of what that looks like, of how that manifests, just so that you're aware in you know, making this particular decision of yours. So let's read on, and it's not a pretty picture, just warning you in advance. It says in verse 5, Indeed, because he, being the proud man, transgresses by wine, some translations say money, the word is very similar, theologians can argue and continue to argue, but we'll move on. He is a proud man. He does not stay at home. He enlarges his desire as hell, and he is like death and cannot be satisfied, gathering nations and heaping up for himself or peoples. He's saying this is the problem with the proud man. It's this, this hypothetical scenario. See, he always is looking for more. He enlarges his desire as Hades or hell. Don't you love that particular picture? doesn't matter how much you get. He could heap up nations for himself but he'll still be left hungering for more. Verse 6, Will not all these take up a proverb against him and a taunting riddle say, Woe to him who increases what is not his. How long? And to him who loads himself up with many pledges. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will not they awaken and oppress you? And you will become their booty. Woe to those who heap up stuff. There'll be a day of account. There'll be a day where you too are overcome. Because you plundered many nations and the remnant of the people shall plunder you because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. Here's the second woe in verse 9. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house that he may set his nest on high that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. Woe who trusts in his own security. That's what he's saying. The proud man who sits on high says, I'm going to build myself something that's impenetrable. Nothing is going to touch me. Woe to him whose security is ultimately himself. Verse 10, you give shameful counsel to your life, cutting off many peoples and sin against your soul, and the stone will cry out from the wall, the beam and the very timbers will answer it. Are we getting this, this picture of this description as God looks over the epochs of human history? Where are you going to place your trust? Who's going to be on the throne? He continues in verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people labor to feed the fire and the nations weary themselves in vain? He's saying, woe to those who just build empires. 
They're building their little cities that will come and go. And as history tells a, a sordid tale of empires and civilizations that have come and gone. Verse 14, because here's the ultimate reality. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isn't that a picture? Just think, as the waters cover the sea. This is where it's all going to end up. I'm telling you about now a lot of stuff that's difficult to digest at times, but this is where we're going. The whole earth will be covered with the glory, with the knowledge, with the reality of who God is as the waters cover the sea. Let's press on a little more. Are we still doing okay? Need to stop for a moment's break just to digest. Verse 15, Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to the bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. You are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink and be exposed as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you and utter shame on your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will cover you, the plunder of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. Saying, woe to the proud man who pursues pleasure, indulges himself in drink and the luxuries of this life. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you. What a sobering statement that is. But you see, there's these glimpses all the way through of God saying, Evil will have its end. It's having its day right now. You're seeing a lot of things. But there will be a day of judgment. Do not fret. Do not fear, Habakkuk, because it's just like they're, they're piling up more kindling for the day of judgment. There's a bonfire coming. You know, it's all, it's all they're doing is piling it up, heaping it up. But there will be a day where God returns. He splits the sky and he comes to judge the living and the dead. People will give an account for the way that they've lived their lives. Don't like to think about that much, do we? It's far more comfortable just to hide away in you know, our own little world. Verse 18, one more. And what profit is the image that its maker should carve it, that molded image, a teacher of lies, the maker should trust in it, making mute idols. Verse 19, woe to him who says to the wood, awake, to the stone, arise. This is going to teach you. It's overlaid with gold and silver, yet there's no breath in it at all. Saying, woe to those who make their own little idols. You can dress them up however you want. Put a bit of makeup on, cover them in fancy clothes. The reality is, the idols are not going to help you. There is no breath in them at all. And verse 20, this is where he lands. Where else could you land and finish but this reality? But the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. So there you go, you've got your Bible reading in for the next month. It's a very large portion of scripture, but it's this one perspective-shifting reality for Habakkuk. And as we read on, we'll see that something in this so grabbed his heart that the very next verse, he's grabbing a guitar and he's singing a praise song to God. So what is it in there as we wrestle through this, this reality that God said, this is certain, you can build your life upon this, this is happening, it's not for now, this is for an appointed time yet to come, but it, it might tarry, but it will surely come. Behold the proud, 
in all of his glory, as he heaps up kingdoms, as he pursues wealth and indulgence in the pleasures of this life. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright, but the just shall live by faith. Well, here's the reality for me, and it's really simple, but I think it is really important for us to grasp. See, in the midst of this reality of the sovereignty of God, where he he does encourage Habakkuk, he says, do not think that wickedness is going to be unpunished. There will be a day of reckoning. The The whole earth will come to know that he is God. Even though he might see none of it in his lifetime. That in the midst of this, this picture of God's sovereignty, there is an invitation for him and for us as we read and hopefully consider these words. That we too would be a people who know what it is to live by faith. To live by faith. The just, the righteous, live by faith. You see, he's saying there's only two paths you can walk upon. You want to talk about meaningless and futility? Look, look at this. Look at all that the the pride of man in all his glory is going to accomplish in in the fullness of human history. Is that really the way that you would like to live your life? Enlarging your desires and the futility of storing things up in sinful indulgence, in idolatry. He's saying, Habakkuk, you want to know the point. You want to know where I am and how do you live your life when there is this kind of thing that's going on around you? And his answer is really simple. This is the point. I am the point. Live by faith in me. Live by faith in me. So this is what's important for us to grasp. What is this faith? Because as we've talked about, Habakkuk has no visible signs of anything in his immediate surroundings with which to hang his coat. No signs of the Lord's blessing, no encouragement that God's about to to come and make everything. He has got nothing else other than this invitation to put his faith in God. So what is the definition, if we could kind of distill this invitation to Habakkuk, what is it that God's inviting him to? And we'd have to say, well, it's not to some sort of moral steadfastness, to an earnestness of specific duties. It is simply this. This faithfulness, this faith, there's no other definition that fits the bill here. It's simply this. It means a trust and a dependence and a clinging to God. It means living and moving and having one's being in him Alone. This faithfulness is a life that's lived anchored in to God and his promises alone and sustained by his power when there's no other evidence of his outworkings in the immediate surroundings. See, the embrace of God's conversation of this certainty that God gives to Habakkuk becomes his shelter, not only for him, but I, I would say for Israel as well, as, as they read his words, as they read his oracle. For us, hopefully, as we read these words thousands of years later, that there was a shelter when there was no other means of shelter possibly available. There's no promise of blessing and favor and abundance and all the things that we normally associate with faith. It was purely a promise to shelter within God. 
and his goodness and his grace and his mercy to us. So think about this. You see, Habakkuk, I feel for this man, as I do for a lot of the old Old Testament prophets who had to lie on their side and marry prostitutes and praise the Lord, that era has come and gone. But he had a tough gig. There was no foreseeable hope on the future for him. And as he cries out to God, God gives him nothing. He says, actually, Habakkuk, I hate to tell you, but it's going to go from bad to absolutely off the charts worse. Like things are going to spiral out of control. The enemy is going to come in and invade the people. Our wickedness is going to appear to abound in increasing measure. There's, there's no promise of anything for him. He doesn't say, it's okay, it's going to be right. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a nice house. I'll give you a nice car. I mean, you're going to be blessed. You're going to be financially provided for. You're going to have every luxury that this life could offer. God doesn't offer any of those things. He doesn't promise it will get better. He doesn't promise that Habakkuk will be blessed, be successful, that he'll be worth. He'll be wealthy. He gives him one promise and one promise alone. He gives him something greater than this world could ever offer. He says, I'm going to give you myself. Put your faith in me. And I want to suggest this is the point. See, this is a picture of true faith because it's built not on temporary pleasures, selfish desires, but it's built on and it draws its strength from the permanent promise of the living God. And so Habakkuk, he gives us this picture of faith that in our modern Western world, if ever there is a time for us to grab a hold of this picture of faith, it is here and it is now. And Paul in his day, he grabbed a hold of this. He, he says that this is not only for Habakkuk, but Paul with inspired sight, he saw this to be God's universal principle of salvation. It's not about works. It's not about everything that God's going to do for us. And it is this reality that when there is nothing else for us to hang on to, we can hang on to him and we can find a faith and a hope that's even more deeper and even more enduring in the midst of calamity and disaster and struggles. See, when your faith is anchored in him alone, then it cannot be shaken. I think we've done this injustice in the Western church. There's many good things that we could be thankful for in modern church, churchianity and you know, Christian perspectives. One of the great injustices is that we seem to have, and, and I see this in my own life as well as in the messages that are preached and proclaimed, but we have unwittingly developed this codependency between faith being both the benefits of what God gives us and the reality of who he is. And so often our faith is built not upon a God who's worthy when everything else is up the creek. But our faith is built upon what we believe that God is to do for us the benefits that he, would, he will provide. 
See, is our faith more based and built on the healing that we seek or the healer? Is it more on the provision or is it on the one who is our provider? Is it on the promise that we're hanging on to and we shouldn't stop hanging on to promises? Don't get me wrong. Or is it on the promise maker? Now, God is good. We know that. Yes, God is good. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's kind. He loves to give good gifts to his children. He loves to take care. All of that is wonderful. We need to hang on to that. The distinction that I'm trying to make here is that we need to make sure that our faith is never a means to an end, but it is the end in itself. We live by faith. Not faith as a means to an end, not faith as a, a means to blessing, to, to live a, a life that looks as we so often do. What, what does a life of faith look like? It, it looks like three cars in the garage and a nice comfortable existence. It looks like money and wealth and prosperity and success. And it may. And if those things come our way, we don't refuse them. But it also may not. It may look like Habakkuk, who's just been told... It's going to go from bad to worse. You're going to see some stuff that you would not even believe if I told you. And I'm going to tell you anyway. The enemy's coming. It's going to be... It's, but here's the comfort in the midst of that. That you can live by faith. And so that's the journey of Habakkuk, who in the midst of this wrestling, he discovers afresh the one who's worthy of everything. We'll look at this more next week, and we looked at it in the first week, but I can never get over his concluding remarks. He says, though the fig tree doesn't blossom, though there's no fruit on the the vines, though the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off, he continues on and on. He's saying, though all of this might happen, here's... Here's what I've discovered, yet my hope is in God. Because no longer is my faith built on an outcome. It's not built on the olive crop needing to provide sustenance. It's not built on my bank account. It's not built on my my successful everything. I've discovered this faith that is so much greater than any outcome that this world could give me. And he's not saying we never want this to happen again. He'll say in this praise, Lord, let, it, let, let there be a day where there's great favor. But it's this reality of a faith and a man who in the midst of his wrestle, he discovers afresh the one who's worthy of his everything. He's a, he's a God who's worthy not because alone of what he does for you, but because of who he is. That he alone will forever be enough. His love that never fails, his mercies that are new each and every morning. And you see that the Bible gives us these pictures. Habakkuk, this man who, there's nothing going right in his life. And God says, yep, and that's the way it's going to continue. And yet he comes through that with this faith on fire. You look at Job, another one of these stories that we like to maybe just quickly skip to the end and Skip over the other parts. Who loses everything? And yet he comes to this place. This just gets me every time. He says, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. What? Are you serious? I mean, I have trouble trusting if I get out of bed and my coffee's not warm enough. You know, <laughs> like there's persecution right there. 
But that's the ultimate act of surrender, isn't it? That he's worthy. If I lose every, even my life, it's on the altar. That's a picture of faith. Can we get the worship team to come out and we'll bring this to a, a conclusion? Can we honestly say those words of Habakkuk? Though the fig tree does not blossom, though there's no fruit on the vine, though there's calamity around me, though there's circumstance, though my, my husband or wife's just walked out on me, though the kids are in rebellion, though I've just lost my job, though there's, there's mountains of debt that I can't see a way through. Despite all of that, yet there is a God who is worthy of my praise. I remember being so struck, there was a movie that came out a few years ago. It was a movie about the life of the Apostle Paul. Probably many of you saw that. and It was a very real, raw betrayal of his life. Reasonably accurate to Scripture. Good movie, worth a watch, just not a feel-good, Hollywood kind of happy ending movie. But there's this one scene there as Paul, you know, he's, he's preaching to Christians and there's stuff happening that... Some of the believers are, are used as torches under persecution of Nero. They're, they're set alight and it's just horrible persecution happening. And yet in the midst of all that, there's this unshakable joy. And there's this one scene where there's a group of Christians, there's about 20 or 30 of them, and they're there in the, at the Colosseum and they're waiting to be, you know, for the doors to go up and to be fed to the lions. And you know, we know from church history that that was a common account that they, for sport, just feed the Christians to the lions. And of all times to be afraid and, and terrified, and but they're there, literally facing death. And this is what just moved me in the movie. They're there, grouped together, and they're singing praises to God. And you never see what happens next, but to me, you know, that's just the details. I'm like, God, where's, where's that faith in my life? That whatever happens, whatever I'm facing, I, I am at times, I'm just being honest, I'm such a comfort Christian. It's far more, Lord, only when the fig tree blossoms, only when there's fruit on the vine, only when... I'm having a really good day and the sun's shining and there's a hot cup of coffee in my hand, then I'm okay. I'm, I'm good for, for trusting in you. But you know, I, I just want to stir in our hearts that there's, there's more to faith. There's, there's a faith that turned the world upside down. There's, there's a faith that saints of the ages have found that they love their lives, not even unto death. They just, he, He's everything. You don't know that Christ is all you need, someone said, until He is all you have. And it's my prayer that we don't need to be facing the lions or in the Job or the Habakkuk scenario to discover that reality. We can discover right now that there is a God who is worthy of our everything. Could you stand this morning with me? It's my prayer for us this morning that each and every one of us here would have our eyes open, have our hearts stirred to this reality that 
Habakkuk, he finds in, in the midst of horrible circumstances, he wrestles through and he discovers the one who is worthy of everything. For those of us who know the Lord, it's my prayer this morning that, that our hearts, our hearts would be stirred afresh. That we would have that faith. You know, I, I, I don't pray that we would come into seasons of persecution, but I tell you what, you look at the way the church thrives when there's external things that come to try and snuff it out. And that's the fire that I pray for in my life. That's the fire I pray for in us, that we would be burning for Him, burning witnesses, alight with a passion of God, not just for what He does. Let's celebrate the blessings. But He's worthy for who He is. And I want to give an invitation this morning too. If there's anyone here this morning and you've never met the one who is worthy of your everything, maybe like, Habakkuk, you're too, you're wrestling in that place of God. What's, what's the point? What's the point of life? I, I don't see anything. And I want you to hear this clearly this morning. Let me tell you not what the point is, but who the point is. And his name is Jesus. And he's the God who stepped down and he hung on a cross. He made a way where there was no way. His arms are wide open. There's a free invitation. If you would just take that step of faith this morning, say, yes, I want to put my faith in Jesus Christ. I know that I need Him. And today I choose to turn away from my sins, to remove myself from the throne of my life, to be silent before the God of heaven. Tremble in his presence to set my sights upon him, to follow him, to love him, to serve him for the rest of my life. And you know, if there's anyone, I just I feel to do this this morning, we don't do it every week, but if there's anyone here this morning and you would like to say, Yes, I want to make that step, sometimes we ask people to close their eyes and sneak up your hand. I want to ask you to be bold. Because we want to be bold people. And we are amongst friends and family this morning. We're not here to judge you, we're here to celebrate. You know, it says in the Bible that every time a sinner repents and turns towards God, there's a party, the celebration. The angels are rejoicing. So if there's anyone this morning, I want you to be bold enough step out of your seat and come forward. If that's you, you say, yes, I want you to pray for me. I want you to pray with me. I want to take that step of faith. I want to surrender my life to Christ. I'm just going to give you a moment, but I want you to be bold. Just come now. Just come now and we'll celebrate with you. The Lord is tugging on your heart. Then hear his voice and respond. Take that step of faith. I'm just going to wait one moment longer. Just come now. 
Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would go deep into our hearts. We pray that it would, it would stir, and not only stir, but challenge us and convict us where we need to be challenged and convicted. Father, I pray for a, a day and a season of a bold people rising up in a bold faith, a faith that's not built on the blessings and the temporary pleasures of this life, although, Lord, we, we do not forsake all that you give to us, your gracious gifts. But we ask for a faith that's built purely and wholly on the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, on the reality of our God who has saved us, who has given everything for us. So give us the boldness to face whatever life brings us, anchored into you, secure in the reality of an eternal and faithful Stir us afresh, I pray. In Jesus' name. We're just going to enter into a song, and I'll just encourage you this morning, if you, if you want to respond, you know, if there's something stirring in your heart, you can come and just kneel at the front. That's permittable, not only permittable, that's encouraged here. Just to say, God, stir that afresh in my heart.